Hi everyone, this episode has been kindly sponsored by John Egan, and he asked us to say a quick word for the Irish homeless charity Focus Ireland. It's that time of year when it's bitterly cold outside that charities like Focus Ireland could really use your help. So if you want to donate, you can find them at focusireland.ie. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history, and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Whoa, Naomi, we're on our final episode of the season. Oh my God, Tim, I can't believe it. What a season it has been. Thank you every listener who has supported us since our launch in April. It has been an absolute blast. Yeah, thank you so much. We've had such a great time researching and producing these episodes and hearing all your feedback. But, Naomi... This is quite an episode to ring out the season with because it has been a pretty hectic few weeks for Ireland in the international media. Tell me about it. So like total chaos erupted in the last few weeks in the UK's negotiations with the EU and it was all over the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So if you haven't been following, first of all, talks collapsed at the last minute Mm. when they hit the roadblock, which, by the way, people in Ireland kind of saw coming a mile away, which was the question of the border. Brexit campaigners had really ignored this issue, kind of in favour of their own wishful thinking. Mm. The fact is, guys, if you leave the EU and all of the regulations and the common market and the customs union, then you have to have a border with the EU somewhere where goods and people are checked. That's just necessary. And of course, Ireland made it a red line in the talks that it couldn't be like that on the Northern Irish border because it would immediately throw people's lives into upheaval and it would cause economic damage and it would potentially destroy the peace deal that largely ended decades of terrible conflict there. It's important to stress as well that Ireland really had not much other choice here. I mean, I think pretty much any political party in power would have done something very similar to what Fine Gael has done. Because the UK has always insisted, right, that there would not be a hard border in Northern Ireland if they leave the customs union. But to date, they haven't been able to give a plausible explanation about how they were going to achieve this. There's all sorts of kind of vague ideas of technological solutions, but nothing concrete has ever been put on the table. So just for the basic assurance of its own international border, it was basic politics, really, that the Irish government would demand and just a written guarantee that the UK was going to do what it said it would do, keep the border open. Now, the thing is, right. if the UK leaves the customs union and single market, you have to have a border somewhere, like we said. And for a moment, it looked like it was going to be moved to the Irish Sea. And for all intents and purposes, that would have kept Northern Ireland and the Republic in the same EU regulation zone with the island of Britain leaving. Uh, but the unionist Northern Irish party, the DUP, which of course supports Theresa May's government in Parliament, threatened to walk out of that government if Theresa May agreed to that. So now it's been amended. Yes, and in the end, they managed to all agree. So the agreement is essentially no border on the island of Ireland. Both uh, jurisdictions there are going to keep their regulations more or less the same. Equally, no border in the Irish Sea. So that essentially means the UK cannot have its hard Brexit unless Northern Ireland agrees to some special arrangement to allow that. 
which the DUP is probably going to block. So basically, Northern Ireland has stopped a hard Brexit. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what it looks like for now anyway. These things are changing by the minute. But <laughs> how they're going to make that work with a hard Brexit that they still insist they're going to do uh, is still a mystery to everyone. Many of the ways of British politicians are mysterious. But let's hear what Irish Taoiseach Leo Varadkar had to say. He addressed the two communities in Northern Ireland after the compromise was reached. I want in particular this morning to recognise the concerns of the unionist community in Northern Ireland. And I want to assure you that the Irish government has no hidden agenda. There is no question of us trying to exploit Brexit as a means of moving towards a united Ireland without consent. Our guiding light and our only ambition throughout has been to ensure that the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement continue to operate in full after Brexit and that people can go about their normal lives and businesses as before and just as they have done for the past 20 years. To the nationalist people in Northern Ireland, I want to assure you that we have protected your interests throughout these negotiations and will continue to do so. Your birthright as Irish citizens and therefore as Europeans has been protected. There will be no hard border on our island and you will never again be left behind by an Irish government. So, to say the least, it's been a week of drama. And unfortunately, it saw relations between Ireland and Britain strained to their lowest point in decades. And this has not been helped at all by some of the sound bites that have been emerging from British media and government figures in the last few weeks, showing that a lot of people in high positions would like nothing more than to spin this story to make Ireland the new scapegoat for Brexit's failings. To give a few examples, Naomi, the former Tory party leader Ian Duncan Smith came on Channel 4 News recently with some unusual claims about the motivations of the Irish government. When there's an election about to go on in Ireland, the presidential election... Well, no, that's not going to happen anymore. Well, no, the presidential election is coming up. And, of course, the key point about that is I think the present government is feeling very worried about Sinn Féin, so there's there's a great kind of bit of showboating going on in Ireland. Whichever way you cut it, politicians can see that straight away. Oh my god, like you can tell he's bluffing here. Like he's really mastered that kind of patronising tone of he really knows what he's talking about. But actually, you know, he sounds authoritative, but he has no idea what he's talking about. Like the president is a largely ceremonial figurehead. So they don't affect uh, government policy. It's a bit like saying the, the queen could, you know, cause the soft Brexit or something like that. And the other mad idea that you hear him referring to there, it's kind of doing the rounds, is that Fine Gael, um, the Radcar's party, they're doing all this, they're making a fuss about the border only because they're, they're worried about Sinn Féin getting votes, which is another really absurd thing to hear because it's like saying the Liberal Democrats in the UK are going after the UKIP vote. You know, they're completely opposite ends of the political spectrum. And to be frank, among all parties, Fine Gael is the least inclined to sneakily try to bring about a united Ireland. Yes, <laughs> I mean, to say the very least. Yeah. Uh, not only have these things been coming up in the British media, but they've become kind of standard rebuttals uh, to the Irish position, and they're, and they're based on rumour. Channel 4 also aired a pretty cringeworthy vox pop on the streets of the UK in the last few weeks, which went super viral because many of the public um, that they interviewed apparently didn't know that there was a border with Ireland at all, and very few of them could accurately figure out where it was. One interviewee suggested that Irish concerns about the reimposition of a hard border was just sulking. I think it should be an open border. There's always, pretty much always been an open border. What would really solve the problem and what would be in everyone's interest is if Ireland left. I do think the Irish are just making trouble because they lost. It's a bit petty, isn't it? Yeah, the sort of Irish have to lump it, basically. You can't always have what you want in life. 
when Channel 4 actually went to Ireland to speak to people there, Irish viewers somehow got the feeling that they weren't taking this whole thing very seriously. Take a listen to this. Europe editor Matt Fry is in Drogheda, not far from the Irish border tonight, gauging Irish public opinion. Matt. Jackie, we're about 40 kilometres from the border and there are almost 40 bars and pubs in Drogheda. We have chosen Clark's Bar to be here tonight on a Wednesday night. I have to say the place is absolutely heaving with people having pints of Guinness and a few glasses of wine, perhaps a gin and tonic. But all of them are concerned about the future of what's going to happen to the Irish border. No, 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 I can't bear it. it I can't bear it. It's, it's not just that they say Drahada wrong. Guys, you say it, it's Drahada, okay? It's not just that they needlessly list all the drinks that people are having. It's also, um, it's the way they make out, like, they've gone up to border territory when, in fact, they're like an hour outside Dublin. So no one from, from Ireland would actually think of Drahada as being a border town. It's more like a Dublin commuter town. And if they're just going to drive up the motorway and go to, like, the nearest big town and set up in the first pub you find, at least go as far as Dundalk, which is actually near the border, and it's it's like the next stop up on the motorway. It's just such lazy reporting. Meanwhile, over on Sky News, MP Richard Moore was having a hard time figuring out who runs Ireland in the first place. If you listen to Bertie Ahern, if you listen to Enda Kelly, these are two uh, former uh, T-shirts, Prime Ministers of Northern Ireland. Uh, they haven't quite played ball. Uh, like the present Irish Prime Minister. Listeners, we think he's talking about Enda Kenny, not Enda Kelly, who was, of course, not Taoiseach of Northern Ireland, that position doesn't exist, but Taoiseach of the Republic. Then, Sky News presenter Adam Bolton turned on the Irish Taunashta, Simon Coveney, saying this. Do you think that this week's kerfuffle has been necessary? I mean, do you feel slightly guilty that perhaps uh, the Irish government overbriefed what they'd been achieved as a victory over the British for the European Union? That provoked the DUP. And if you'd been uh, a bit more straightforward about a practical agreement at the beginning, we wouldn't have had these four days of turmoil. When Bolton was challenged on Twitter later on, he responded, I quote, You Irish need to get over yourselves which has spawned a whole new hashtag on Twitter, hashtag YouIrish. I think it's important to understand that, you know, Irish people hear these comments when they're made on UK media. You know, we, we speak English, we get the media, like, we, we're here, hi. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all managed to annoy people who don't usually get annoyed by this stuff, who don't usually care about, you know, defending the honour of Ireland or whatever. It's wound up even, you know, the most moderate and cool-headed of people. I read one tweet from a guy called Jason Ashford, who's a student up in Northern Ireland, and he said, I'm a centre-left, pragmatic, soft unionist, and the Tory attitude to the Irish border has me tweeting like the Sinn Féin press office. (laughs) I think that says it all. I think even at that, it was really shocking to a lot of people in Ireland to see the level of lack of knowledge amongst senior politicians in Westminster. Now, a lot of very out dated ideas were revealed to be quite prominent over there. So today we want to explore what everyone in the international media has been remarking on about this. Why did this issue take everyone in Westminster by surprise? Why did the UK government and many politicians there only seem to discover now the complexities of Northern Ireland and its border? Yeah, right. Like, and what's really weird at the heart of that is it means if ignorance about Northern Ireland is so prevalent among politicians, among media and ordinary people in Britain, it means they haven't a chance in hell of understanding the conflict that happened in their own country between 1968 and 1998, which is amazing. Naomi, now, isn't it peculiar how how many of our episodes have suddenly become super relevant in the last few days? Right, yeah. yeah. Our, our first episode, uh, you, you might remember, listeners, was on the border. 
Our second episode explained modern unionism and who the DUP were, because they had just come into government in Westminster at that point. Setting everyone googling in Britain. Yes, <laughs> setting everyone uh, going mad on the internet. And back in June, we also made, uh, you will remember, an episode on the lack of knowledge in Britain about Ireland and Northern Ireland. And also how that meant that the UK was possibly, we said, heading for a border crisis, apparently without knowing. Yeah, kind of called it, Tim. Yeah, totally called it. Uh, well, we were, <laughs> we were not the only ones, to be fair. But just listen to this headline from the Sunday Business Post recently. Naomi, at the height of the border crisis, it says, Government tells Britain, learn about Ireland before crucial Brexit talks. Isn't that an embarrassing headline for Britain? <laughs> Wouldn't it? I mean, honestly, it's amazing to see the knowledge gap as front page news, I have to say. If you do want to listen to that episode, what we did was we examined the school history curriculum, which is taught in England and Wales. And we discovered that even for the minority of students who study history, they can completely avoid learning about Ireland. And even if they do, what they might learn could be completely skewed. So yeah, it really explained a lot. Like, yeah. it's interesting to think that this knowledge gap about Ireland also, you know, may have seriously affected the referendum campaign. Uh, we might remember from our episode four that some high profile Tory Brexiteers like David Davis, you know, at that point seemed deeply confused at certain points whether Ireland was in the UK or not. Mm. One, one Irish immigrant in London recently wrote to us. Uh, she said that her major worry was that the Leave voters she was speaking to didn't even realise she was from a foreign country. They had no idea that her right to live and work in the UK could be brought under threat. I've had that experience so many times myself. So Tim, you know the last time I was in England, I decided to see if I could capture the knowledge gap on tape. Okay, what this meant in practice was I was a complete asshole at a hen party. So I was at a hen party, I gathered around the girls, lovely girls, very friendly, very nice, and they kindly consented to be quizzed on Irish history while hungover. Oh, yes. Legends. So, absolute legends of girls, and thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, they're all university graduates, they're all working in London or the Southeast, and I think they're more or less typical. I don't think they're outside the norm in what they think about Ireland. Let's hear what they had to say. Hello, I'm from Bristol. Just off the top of your head, what could you tell me about the country Ireland? It's beautiful, the people are lovely, and do they have lovely Guinness, and that's about all. Is it part of the United Kingdom? I would say in a positive way it's quite separate because they've got their own identity, which is very strong, but there is this... They are part of our culture in that you talk about their differences, if that makes sense. In the way, you know, English, Irish, Scottish jokes, they're very distinct, yet it's very important that they're still part of the United Kingdom, I feel. Who would you say is the head of state? That I have no, no clue. Do you have any idea about the Irish government or what it's like? Or could you name an Irish political party? No. <laughs> Quite embarrassing. I, I don't. Do you remember anything about the Troubles or anything like that? Do you remember Ireland being in the news at all, like just growing up? I've been uh, quite aware of Sinn Féin and hearing about the Troubles and speaking to friends. Uh, one friend, he's about... 40 and he was talking about when he was growing up and he had to queue up for like an hours just for a banana which is insane it's very odd to think of the, the country being so different but my knowledge is pretty poor could you tell me the difference between ireland and northern ireland 
other than Northern Ireland seem quite separate. I've never visited Northern Ireland, but I've visited Southern Ireland. And from what I hear, it's quite separate and distinct, and there's a lot of trouble. I'd, I'd say I hear a lot of trouble in the north. That's all I know. Would it be clear in your mind which part of the island is part of the UK and which part isn't part of the UK? Uh, Southern Ireland is part of the UK and Northern Ireland is separate. Is that correct? Okay, well, let's just explore that one sec. Okay, so if Southern Ireland is part of the UK, what currency do you think it uses? The euro. Does it use the euro? Yeah. I've been to Southern Ireland and I can't remember. Is it like uh, like Scotland, they have their own currency but it's accepted everywhere? But I can't. The euro? <laughs> It's not part of the UK. Ireland's a distinct EU member. It's been independent for about 100 years. Wow. Who knew? (laughs) So having discovered now that Ireland is independent, why do you think that you thought it was part of the UK? Because I want it to be. Oh, yeah. It's a lovely country that uh, you want to be part of the family. Not that uh, I'm proud to be part of this family. It seems to be falling apart, but you kind of want to be united, and and it's lovely that it's such a separate culture, yet so diverse. You just want it to be all joined. Do, Do you remember learning about Ireland in history class at all? Not at all. Hey, I'm from London. I work in management consultancy. So if you were to give like a kid, say, you had to teach them what is Ireland, what, what would you say? What would like, the first facts be that come to mind about its history? And that? Ireland as a whole. Um, so Ireland's divided into North Ireland and South Ireland. Um, the North Ireland is part of the UK. Um, South Ireland's separate, so has a separate currency and governance. So if you were to guess like, roughly how long has Ireland, the Republic, been independent and not part of the UK, roughly? Around about 50 years would be my guess. Yeah. I'm not really sure, though. It's a wild guess. What do you remember of learning about Irish history growing up? If I'm honest, I really don't remember learning much at all, if anything, apart from being told the separation between North and the Republic. I don't think it was really taught. It was more just concentrating on British history, I suppose, even with regards to the war. I don't necessarily recall any facts relating to Ireland. It doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't taught, but nothing really sticks in my mind. Was there a war? Um, In the past, in Ireland. I mean, they were involved in the First World War and the Second World War, but I'm not sure if there's been any other wars in Ireland now, I don't know. Do you know who the head of state is in Ireland? I have no idea. No, I don't know. (laughs) Do you know of any Irish political parties? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) No, I don't. Some people don't realise that Ireland is independent and they think it's part of the UK. Would you, if you had to guess, would you think that was fairly common or would you have any explanation for why that might be? I think it's probably more common in certain areas. And it really is down to education. It really is down to education and a misconception, I suppose, having the same name, perhaps people can get a bit confused. And yeah, no, I've heard that before, people going to Dublin for the first time and being surprised that the euro was actually being used rather than sterling. So it's more common, and not just with children, I think, across all ages. 
Hi, I'm 29. I work in technology and I'm living in London at the moment. If you were to give like a quick potted history of Ireland to like a kid, let's say, you just had to explain what it was. What, what do you think you would say? What would come to mind? Say Ireland is a country that's been divided. Northern Ireland now works or is part of the United Kingdom and then the Republic of Ireland is separate. I don't know the history of why there's the divide there. So if you were to guess roughly about when would the Republic of Ireland have become independent, would you say, more or less? I'm going to go with something like 1850. I don't know why. <laughs> Could you name the Irish head of state? No. Or an Irish political party? Yes, but only because the it's the one that's formed a coalition with the UK government. And I've forgotten the name of that now. The National... Anyway, I know the one that's now formed a coalition with um, the Tories, but I don't know. What do you remember about them? Very far right. The big thing I remember about them, just because it relates to my sexuality, is the, they were pretty anti-LGBT rights, uh, which was quite shocking. Um, so, yeah, just kind of very right-wing views. So that's the DUP? Yes. Do you know about gay rights in Northern Ireland and what, what, ex- what extent people have them? Uh, I know that gay marriage was made legal two years ago. No, sorry, not two. Basically, the Pride before the last one, because a lot of LGBT people were celebrating gay marriage during last year's Pride. Outside of that, I'm not really sure of the extent of it, but I assume it was not really thought of that much, because I know that um, kind of abortion and stuff were only brought in quite recently, so I'd imagine LGBT rights have only been addressed. And I'm talking about the last 20, 30 years or something. And this is, um, just to be clear, this is the Northern Ireland or the Republic that you're talking about? Uh, I'm talking about the Republic in this case, because I assume that the gay rights bill is the same as the UK and Northern Ireland. Um, There's no no gay marriage in Northern Ireland? Yeah. There's no abortion either, or in the Republic? Oh, wow. Basically, there's a bit of confusion about whether Ireland is part of the UK or not. Do you think that's common? And would you have any idea about why that might be? I think, yeah, I think to anyone who doesn't really understand the history between the Republic of Ireland and Ireland would assume that the whole of Ireland just belongs to the UK. Um, simple things like when you're doing the weather forecast, really simple things like that, like the how maps are formed. Visually, it looks like it's part of the UK quite a lot of the time. It, so it only really came to light for me about sort of 10 years ago or so, the actual history between of Ireland and where the Republic formed and things. So. How did that happen? I don't actually know. I just uh, tried to say that. <laughs> There was a huge uh, civil was it a civil battle or something? I think I'm not quite sure when. So I don't know why I just said that. Sorry. <laughs> what do you remember being taught about Ireland in school? Anything? Absolutely nothing. Uh, which is quite quite shocking, really. Not even about Northern Ireland or anything. So my I did history for GCSE as well, and we just mainly focused on the World Wars, and Ireland was never brought into it. So this was before the border crisis thing flared up. So it is possible that since then they've had to get a bit more to grips with the island next door. Sure. Uh, let me put this to you, Naomi. Um, an English guy I was speaking to recently played devil's advocate with me on The Knowledge Gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, like, why should, let's say, a working class family in Swindon care where the border of Northern Ireland is anyway? Like, Northern Ireland simply doesn't affect the lives of a lot of people in England. They have bigger things to be worrying about, you know? Okay, so, like, the argument is that Northern Ireland is justly irrelevant to English people? 
Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, when you're struggling to pay the rent, when you're struggling with your own personal issues, where a border is on a neighboring island doesn't affect you directly. I mean, it's an interesting stance. My response would be that I don't think that ignorance, if it's harmful, is just... I think that English people have been totally failed by their education and their political leaders, essentially. The, the fact is, a country can get away with not knowing very much about the other geopolitical players that's around it, if it's a very powerful nation. Now, Britain isn't anymore, although it seems to labour under other delusions. But the Brexit mm. situation is an inevitable reckoning with that fact. To get another perspective on this, I was sitting down with the guys from the Fly By Those Nets podcast. Uh, they produce a really, really good website on Northern Irish issues, by the way. So I recommend all you guys to pop over there to Fly By Those Nets um, to take a look. Shout out to the Fly By Those Nets team. <laughs> yeah, big time. Hi, guys. So let's hear from Nathan Stewart, Kieran Pradeep and Gabriel Doran, who represent a spectrum of uh, social cultural identity in Northern Ireland. And I asked them, why should a working class family in Swindon give a crap about Northern Ireland? Let's hear from them. People in England, Swindon in particular, why should they give a shit about Northern Ireland? It's kind of like, at least they have the choice. People in Northern Ireland have to give a shit about England. We've had a period of direct rule for a long time. Um, we have to know what's going on in England and in London in particular. Uh, it's quite a luxury to be able to forget about the, the kind of far-flung corners of, maybe not the Empire now, but of the constituent parts of the United Kingdom. Say so for me personally, how I didn't watch the RTE weather reports, I watched the BBC. So you have to wait to the end to hear the Northern Irish weather. And you know all of the geography of England and you don't, you have to wait to find out your own weather. So it's like, I know more about England than I would about the rest of Ireland. I couldn't name you the 32 counties, but I could name you all these little towns. So it's kind of like growing up watching British TV, I know far more about England than English, English people would know about me. And uh, I think that kind of comes with the territory of being the kind of the underdog in any of these relationships. I talked to my Scottish friends when I used to study in Glasgow and they'd be, yeah, they'd be kind of well-versed in English history, um, but you wouldn't have found that the other way. And that's exactly what you were talking about in your Knowledge Gap podcast before. There's a big subsection of uh, the Northern Irish population that feel more British than any people on mainland Britain. It's, it might seem like a foreign country to a lot of people in England, but to the people in Northern Ireland, they seem like very, very connected. Northern Ireland is kind of like a country which has willed itself into existence through sheer force of will. It created itself as part of the United Kingdom. And basically, as UK taxpayers, this is like your last investment in empire and kind of it was like the, the colonial laboratory before like, you know, kind of the colonization of the new world. So if you look at towns like Derry, they were like laid out on the pattern that was like replicated across the East Coast. It's kind of like, it's very fascinating just to see Northern Ireland as a cog in Britain's own tapestry. There's also been like a lot of great unpleasantness, which has also been subsidized by the British taxpayer. So where you have, you know, British soldiers uh, shooting dead other, you know, taxpayers in the streets uh, who may not have the same kind of cultural affinity or cultural identity and this kind of reflects badly on the people of Swindon. Also the fact that like there's a sense of British values whereas in Northern Ireland there is a sense of British identity which doesn't quite share the same values. For, uh, for levels of basic fairness like I think it's great to have like an awareness of like basically what Northern Ireland is. Um, you know, just to kind of see like uh, if it fits your idea of what Britain is or should be or can be. I think Kieran really uh, articulated that very well, this idea of, yes, we have more British identity in Northern Ireland as opposed to the British values. Uh, like, you know, what British values, some of the reasons why I think UK has garnered so much respect as a modern nation in the world are uh, those aspects like you can, women can ex exercise their bodily autonomy by having an abortion on by paying their taxes for it through the NHS. Uh, there's marriage equality across the UK, apart from Northern Ireland. 
So it's, it's still, um, there's still, unfortunately, this kind of real palpable sense of social conservatism, really, uh, that has sort of just been, remained, becoming ingrained in Northern Ireland. So, yeah, it, uh, yeah, I think Karen really puts it very well in this idea of uh, just more of the British identity being transposed to Northern Ireland as, as opposed to the values being interpreted as well. Oh, it's so great to get those viewpoints. And, you know, it kind of makes me feel bad for unionists in Northern Ireland sometimes. Like, they have such a strong ardour and affiliation for Britain. And at times it seems really unrequited. Uh, you know, something else in all this that really strikes me, actually, and that really came up in uh, your quiz there with the girls in London, is that there is a kind of common misunderstanding of what the idea of the union means to people. Hmm. Uh, like, I've, I've met a lot of British people who are kind of bewildered as to why the Republic wouldn't want to be in the union. Uh, because hmm. for them, it, it, it's always represented inclusivity. You know, like, for instance, there's this whole cultural discourse in the UK of deciding whether you want to identify as English or as British, for example. I suppose British is seen as maybe like a capacious identity to have. Indeed, and it incorporates all kind of post-colonial identities, for instance, mm. and it's uh, Scottish and English together, so it represents the Union that way. Uh, but of course, in the Republic of Ireland, the Union doesn't represent this at all. Like, that's just not a discourse. It's not a thing. Yeah, I mean, Irish people in general did not have a good time under the Union, guys. Like, it didn't go well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to say the least. And you can check out our, our famine episode if you have any <laughs> doubts about that. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people actually, uh, connectedly, are also under the impression that the political landscape in Ireland is a bit like Scotland, you know? Mm. Like there's there's some kind of live debate about whether Ireland should remain independent, you know? But like, um, this ship has has sailed and it sailed about a hundred years ago now, you know? Yeah, it's not a debate, guys. There, there isn't any political party that wants to rejoin the UK. It's, it's, it's actually a silly idea to think of. Like Irish political parties are Republican mostly and they would all, all of them prefer if Northern Ireland was united with the Republic too, by the way. Although they do disagree about whether that should actually be, you know, actively pursued and if it were to be pursued, how. But Ireland isn't in the Commonwealth. It has no love for post-imperial interesting structures like that. So it's actually more politically removed from the UK than Canada is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think even framing this whole thing in an idea of rejoining the UK is kind of um, missing it a little bit. I mean, like Ireland was only ever in the United Kingdom for 100 years. It has Mm. spent, I mean, under its colonial relationship with Britain, it has spent a lot more time outside the Union than it ever spent inside. It was almost like an experiment that went almost immediately pretty badly you know so um yeah i mean and the whole country was anarchic <laughs> and you know, like disobeying this whole thing and having constant rebellions all the time almost non-stop yeah almost non-stop yeah. throughout so there was never some kind of happy golden age where we all lived together uh, yeah. under that union uh, anyway but another kind of in- insidious assumption that i pick up quite a bit is that in the republic of ireland that we're still somehow culturally british you know like i have a really well-informed friend from london um for instance who has a politics degree and you know he was shocked when he discovered that people in the republic of ireland don't call Call themselves British, you know. Like Why? I found that, like yeah. I mean, I found it really interesting that, like, on some level, a lot of people over there seem to believe that the UK and Ireland are still one cultural unit at the heart of things. Like that, the differences are somehow superficial, mm. and that they're not two sovereign countries, uh, you know, in, in any real way. Um, Guys, you should visit Ireland. Count how many Union Jacks you see. <laughs> um, uh, on the embassy, I'm sure there's one. Um, <laughs> Uh, Dominic Hannigan, actually, who was um, uh, chairman of the Oireachtas EU Affairs Committee, I think he summed it up pretty well. Uh, There was a quote from him in an an Irish Times article recently, and he said, I quote, the problem with the British is that they think we're still part of the family. I guess that kind of soft colonial language, like, for example, the use of the term British Isles, even though it's not recognised by the Irish government, that contributes a lot to assumptions like that. 
And I think this recent crisis has really brought to the surface just how out of date a lot of people's views are of Ireland in Britain. Mm. Like you get crazy things said like, okay, yeah, Ireland should just join the UK, for example. Or that Ireland should just leave the EU and stop being so awkward, you know, with our demands. And there's loads of myths floating around. There's a finance professor, Brian Lucy, who's who's very active on Twitter. And he's like a one-man crusader against certain myths about Ireland that have become really prominent in the Brexit debate. Like, for example, it's really common for Brexit supporters to believe that Ireland is completely economically dependent on the UK. Yep, and Naomi recently got in touch with Brian Lucy to hear what he had to say on the matter himself. It behoves, I think, commentators at whatever level, if they're going to engage in political debate, which they are, to inform themselves. Some sectors are very heavily dependent on the UK, but other sectors aren't. As a source of exports, it's at the same level as Belgium, and it is dwarfed completely by our exports to the rest of the EU. Our largest single market for exports is, is, the, is the USA. Now, in some sectors like agribusiness and some parts of agribusiness, it's a very big, very big play. But you know, they're not the big important parts of Irish business anymore. The notion somehow is that you know, Ireland only consists of potatoes and beef, and they're all sold to the UK, and therefore, if they simply switch, then you know, we'll come to our senses. Also, there's a, there's a common belief that the UK bailed out Ireland in the financial crisis and saved it, and that we owe them for that. In fact, what that was was a loan. It was a uh, it was a very small part of a much larger international package of loans organized by the IMF and EU institutions, and they're loans. You know, we pay them back with interest. As you may have noticed, we had a minor banking issue in nineteen two thousand and eight. By two thousand and ten eleven, the country was, was was unable to fund itself. So, a total funding of about sixty eight billion euro was put in place. That was made up of, overwhelmingly, from the IMF and the European institutions. But the UK did provide about 3.2 billion euro into that pot. So this has become conflated primarily through a Daily Telegraph article about 18 months ago into the fact that the UK took the burden of bailing out Ireland when we were bankrupt. So it's this kind of myth that, you know, if it wasn't for us, you'd be speaking German. That's the kind of approach. (laughs) Um, When, in fact... You know, three billion was nice, but we could have just cut three billion more from the IMF. Now, one of the real problems, of course, as usual, is that people are not entirely aware of how the history really has affected what's happening right now. It's something that's kind of glossed over a lot. Uh, So we decided that we would break down just a very, very short and basic history of why Northern Ireland is a special case in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. It's completely necessary to understand the history here. So we are going to give a really quick dirty, plotted history of Northern Ireland's unique situation. And apologies to to everyone who's going to email us with nuances. We will get back with the details in coming episodes. But this is just, you know, a quick crash course. Okay. Tim, let's go for it. Okay, let's do it. So, the first thing to say is that Northern Ireland, as a political entity, has only been around since Irish independence in 1922. Right. So, after independence from the UK, uh, this part of the island was cut off, and Northern Ireland remained part of the UK. Uh, Essentially, this was because um, that part of the island was the site of an old English and Scottish colony that had been there from the 17th century, Mm -hmm. and the descendants of those colonists were always culturally very distinct from the rest of Ireland. Uh, And more than that, they were extremely loyal to Britain and the Union, especially during the War of Independence, which is why they're known as Unionists. Right, and so the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, who are currently in government with Theresa May, uh, they hail from this Unionist community. And part of the cultural difference that was between them and the Irish identifying side was 
religion. So most unionists were Protestant. And that's why you can sometimes hear unionists being referred to in a kind of shorthand as Protestants. And likewise, the nationalists, Irish Republicans, they're referred to in shorthand as Catholics. But it's really important to note that the main issue wasn't actually religion. It was that there was a difference over, over politics. The unionists did not want to join the new independent Irish state after the War of Independence. Right. So one huge problem with the creation of Northern Ireland and the partition of the island was that while the border was drawn around the six northern counties with a unionist majority, it also fenced in quite a few pockets of Catholic Republican communities. Uh, and these right. these were people who wanted to be part of the independent Irish state. And they were seen, of course, as a, as a threat to the very existence of Northern Ireland by many in this unionist majority up there. So it became imperative for many unionists to keep Catholics out of political power in order to keep Northern Northern Ireland viable as part of the UK. And it's worth keeping in mind as well that the Irish Republic down to the south never wanted the border there in the first place. So they still laid down claim to the whole territory. And the the people there have always been allowed to claim Irish citizenship. So lots of unionists felt fearful of being surrounded by the Republic, you know, on all sides except for the sea. And the Catholics living in the north were sometimes vilified as being like agents of an enemy state. Sure. So within a few decades of the border being created, this situation had already become highly fraught. Northern Ireland had its own devolved parliament uh, at Stormont. And through this, the unionist majority was able to create a society that was extremely weighted in their favour. So Catholics became a kind of underclass in Northern Ireland. They were like, largely kept out of higher social and and professional positions. Mm -hmm. Unionist dominance was also consolidated through systematic voter manipulation, which was known as gerrymandering. And this ensured that even majority Catholic areas were often controlled by unionist representatives. There's a few parallels here with other places with colonial history and lots of nationalists at the time pointed out the similarities with contemporary South Africa, for example. You know, I actually heard that from a South African who grew up under apartheid. Mm. So we had this absolutely fascinating conversation where she said that going to Northern Ireland for her was like going home to her childhood. Like the whole orange identity thing, you also had that in South Africa, the conservatism and, you know, the religion and also the conceptions of authority that go with it and the social segregation as well. The strict segregation at the time can actually be hard to imagine, but it was so extreme and it was so intensified by the conflict that it still lingers on today in Northern Ireland. So through gerrymandering, which created kind of a ghettoization as well, because voter manipulation involved putting a lot of Catholics in one area so they would be maintained in one constituency and have fewer votes. Through that kind of activity, the two communities were physically segregated. You know, there were people living separate lives with separate schools, separate districts of public housing. You know, in the cities, physical walls during the conflict were actually built and they, they're still there. They run like walls of fire through the two communities. Yeah, and they're all over Northern Ireland. Actually, more of them today than there were at the height of the conflict. It's really sad fact that even today, segregation is so strong that people can become adults before they get to know someone from the other community. So yeah, there was this ghettoization in the cities and the divisions were also played out with authorities in a, a way that you might expect, really, because the, the police force was overwhelmingly Protestant. And this division was reflected in how it treated Catholics. Then comes the 1960s. And just like the rest of the world, uh, Northern Ireland was influenced enormously by the rise in peaceful protest movements, uh, especially the 1968 student protests in Paris and the African-American civil rights demos in the United States. So a civil rights movement uh, emerged in Northern Ireland. It was spearheaded by young Catholic students and its aim was to address the inequalities that were being suffered by this Catholic underclass. So what happened was the powers that were in place at the time in Northern Ireland did not react well 
to the emergence of this civil rights movement. So the martyrs were met with violence by the police. And because you had these pre-existing tensions, the situation spiralled quickly. So there were marches, then there were riots, then the riots developed into a horrible thing of mobs who were attacking and burning the houses and businesses of Catholics, for example. And at certain points, Catholic refugees were streaming down into the Republic of Ireland and they had to be given emergency accommodation. Right. And it's at this point that you see the formation of uh, the Provisional Irish Republican Army or IRA. Uh, It's called Provisional, by the way, because the older IRA didn't support uh, its action in Northern Ireland at the time. The older IRA, which was based mostly in the Republic. Mm. Uh, In Unionist areas, uh, similar paramilitary groups sprung up as well, like the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, and the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association who claimed to represent Protestant Unionists. Both sides were highly armed, and violence and reprisals between these pro-British Unionists and Irish Republicans led to barricades and no-go zones springing up all over the cities of Derry and Belfast in particular. So in reaction to all this violence, what happened? Westminster, the London government, sent in the British army, and they sent them in with the aim of restoring law and order. So initially, the army were welcomed as peace bringers, but they very soon alienated the Catholic community and the IRA because they were using this this practice of internment without trial. So scooping up bunches of people because they were under suspicion, a lot of the time because of, you know, the ethnic group they came from, and just banging them up indefinitely without trial. So that radicalised people. People were radicalised in prison. And then there were also atrocities like the Bloody Sunday Massacre, where British soldiers fired on peaceful protesters and killed 14 of them and that fact was then covered up for decades so that really poisoned trust towards British authorities for many people. Sure yeah the arrival of the army was a really significant moment in all this uh, because for the unionists this was this huge reassurance of Northern Ireland's place in the union that they could count on being defended um, by by the British army while for Republicans it seemed like a military occupation. Mm. It stepped up the conflict from an intercommunal violence to an all-out guerrilla war between the IRA and the British Army. And the result was, for decades, Northern Ireland became something of a fortress, you know? Uh, Mm. The border region region was so dangerous that it was known uh, locally as bandit country, and all but a few of the the major roads across the border were blocked or closed. Bombings and shootings from both pro-British loyalists and Republican paramilitaries were an everyday occurrence. Yes, so we're talking physically huge, brutalist, concrete structures and barbed wire all over the place and people living their ordinary lives in what looked and felt like a war zone. Of course the violence spread. British cities were also targeted by the IRA like Birmingham and London which were bombed while in Ireland Dublin and Monaghan were bombed by British loyalists. This whole conflict ground on until it reached a kind of stalemate. So neighbour was killing neighbour and whole communities had been torn apart And also, the paramilitaries began to be riddled with informants. So in the 1990s, there began to be a real hunger for peace. So that's a highly abridged history, all right? Um, You know, we have only really touched on the causes and effects of the Troubles. Uh, But like we said, we'll be exploring all of that history much more in depth in the future. Uh, But let's take a look at how this violence mostly came to an end then with the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Yes, so this Good Friday Agreement, sometimes called the Belfast Agreement, is basically a milestone of diplomacy. You know, the Americans were involved, everyone was involved. It took years, loads of negotiation on both sides 
And essentially it's a series of compromises uh, to reach a peace settlement. So it was really important the political parties that had links to paramilitaries, like for example Sinn Féin and the Progressive Unionist Party, were involved and they played a key role in convincing the hard men to lay down their weapons. The most significant aspect of the Good Friday Agreement was that the Republic of Ireland accepted that Northern Ireland was part of the UK and it retracted its territorial claim over it. At the same time, the UK agreed that Northern Ireland would remain part of the Union only as long as the majority there wanted it. So the people of Northern Ireland themselves can decide democratically if they want to remain or to leave the UK. And they can do this at any time by referendum. This is what we call the border poll. Yes, so if there's evidence that opinion is changing, there can be a border poll. And this agreement also says that there should be equal rights for both communities in the province. So it recognised a united Ireland as being a legitimate political aim. And it also confirmed that people in Northern Ireland can claim either British identity, Irish identity or both. They can have citizenship of either or both if they want to. It also created quite a few all-island institutions like the North-South Ministerial Council, uh, which work across the border with all communities involved. And the devolved parliament at Stormont was reformed and it installed a system of equal power sharing between nationalist parties, unionist parties and everything in between. And of course the border itself became pretty much invisible. So the peace allowed all that barbed wire and the army posts to be dismantled slowly and the the roads were repaired and rebuilt that had been blown up. And since both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland were by this stage both part of the European Customs Union and single market, that meant there was no need for checks between the the two states anyway, because they were all within that. So everyone was free to cross it as they liked and businesses could just sell on either side and people could just basically ignore it, ignore the whole question and live their lives without having to think about these big political issues. Of course, this whole arrangement is underpinned by the situation of both islands being part of the EU and that European identity was really important for people. Right, and even with this underpinning of the EU, this is still immensely fragile. It has managed to keep relative peace in Northern Ireland for almost 20 years now, so everyone is trying to do their very best to keep it up and uh, to support its progress. Yeah, exactly. So, like, it's important to understand this peace has not been perfect. So splinter paramilitaries on both sides didn't accept the peace agreement. And they are still very much active, although they don't have the power they used to have. There's still bomb threats, scares, that kind of thing, the occasional killing. And sadly, there are even more peace walls now, as I said, than there ever were during the conflict. This is a tiny province and the violence was often very concentrated in in small areas. So the effect of that is that it left a lot of physically and mentally scarred people. So there's a lot of inherited trauma and that's combined with economic problems. It's the poorest part of the UK and average incomes are substantially below the Republic of Ireland too. I also have to say it's an absolutely amazing place to visit. Countryside is incredibly beautiful. The cities are amazing. It's an absolute cultural gem and I couldn't recommend to listeners highly enough to go there. It's a fantastic place. I don't want to talk it down. (laughs) Right, absolutely. Um, uh, Northern Ireland also in the last 20 years, thanks to the Good Friday Agreement largely, has undergone a kind of renaissance and the open border has brought large-scale tourism there for the first time in decades. Also, uh, on on the helm of this, a whole new generation has grown up in a peaceful Northern Ireland and this is a really vibrant and forward-thinking generation. So this is why everyone is really apprehensive about what the effect of the Brexit Exit vote might be to all this. So let's take a look, you know, how does the vote affect the Good Friday Agreement? Basically it threw the situation of Northern Ireland into uncertainty. Mm. So the majority in Northern Ireland of course did not vote for Brexit, didn't pass there. Some people argue that if it's taken out of the EU without having voted for that, 
that violates the principle of consent, mm. which was enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement. So basically, it's up to the people there to decide what constitutional status they have. Now, part of the peace process has also been very carefully constructing cross-community and cross-border links, often backed with EU funding. So, for example, a lot of the border area is quite rural. Just in practical terms, if, so if someone has a heart attack, if someone's really sick, often the best hospital for them to be rushed to in an ambulance is on the other side of the border. Sure, and this all presumes that there is some kind of EU standardization and freedom of movement across the border. Exactly. And it's important in other ways too, in the way that it can allow people to embrace vague identities, capacious identities. You know, Europe contains so much variety. Um, there's room for all sorts of diversity within that. And also, you know, in practical terms, the existence of a hard border during the Troubles, that caused great economic decay along the border because it meant any given town along it was cut off from half of the people who might come and visit and buy things and, you know, live their life there. So the open border addressed that and fixed it. And the fact that it's currently hard to tell what side you're on when you're moving around it, it means that people simply don't need to worry about these questions. So suddenly throwing the border into uncertainty, well, that brings back up the questions again about whether Northern Ireland should be part of the UK or not. If there's a hard border as well, the answer to that question might change for a lot of people. It forces the different sides in politics into polarised sides in confrontation with each other and neither can give ground. And in the last few weeks we've really seen how quickly this can all slide backwards. So some unionist leaders in Northern Ireland were saying last week, for instance, that Dublin was trying to like achieve a united Ireland by stealth and that 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 was the real motivation and that they were scuppering the Brexit deal on purpose. And you had conservative politicians in England repeating this inflammatory rhetoric, encouraging it even. So it all sounded very much like the past. I mean, the sad and shocking thing is the sheer carelessness, the political carelessness that, that has led to all of this. Like the, the effect of Brexit on Northern Ireland was simply not a priority in the campaign. And it was not properly considered by almost anyone involved. Like they should have decided way before they were campaigning to leave the EU what exactly was going to happen there. Tim, do you know the reason why this wasn't made an issue of during the campaign? <laughs> I don't, but I, I predict that you're going to tell me, Naomi. <laughs> okay, so basically it was the length of the campaign. It was the length of it. Ah. So the date of the referendum was actually only confirmed in February 2016. So that's when the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, stopped trying to negotiate a better deal with the EU. So he only made this decision, remember, to hold a referendum on, on membership to appease the uh, Eurosceptics in his own party. Not because he wanted a referendum himself, like he was in favour of remaining. But the timing meant that the Remain side had only from February to June to explain to the British people why they should stay in the EU. Oof. And this was after years of Eurosceptic press coverage. And the Remain campaign strategists basically decided with the time they had, they couldn't begin to talk about Northern Ireland because the level of knowledge was so low among the public in the first place. Like you'd have to start with the basics of what Northern Ireland is. So let's hear it from a man who was at the center of it all. His name's Matthew O'Toole. He's from Northern Ireland and he identifies as Irish. Amazingly, he found himself working in number 10 Downing Street as the chief press officer for Europe and economic affairs during the campaign. So I spoke to him in London in his kitchen and this was before that deal was struck that we'd been talking about. He told me what it was like trying to convince the colleagues around him that they needed to talk about Northern Ireland in the campaign and what it was like the moment when Downing Street realised that Britain had voted to leave. Let's hear from him. My career basically was that I was in uh, the civil service for a number of years, ended up working in Downing Street. And what was it like being an Irishman in Downing Street? You have the red hair to match. 
I, I thank you very much. I do. Um, well, it was, I mean, it was an extraordinary experience. Actually, you know, I think there's a strange sense of being, you know, kind of at the center of, of overlapping identities. I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Irishman from, from Northern Ireland, obviously, where there are contesting identities. And I ended up working at the center of the government of the United Kingdom. I'm sure certain people from my homeland probably, you know, raise an eye, right? That sounds like an interesting decision to make. But actually, I found people there were kind of relaxed about the fact that you could have overlapping identities at the center of government. Now, the difficulty was that when it came to the referendum campaign, actually, I don't think there was enough of an understanding of how much those overlapping identities were accommodated by European Union membership, how the relationships between Britain and Ireland had been kind of transformed or assisted in their transformation by both countries being members of the European Union. When was it that you actually noticed that Northern Ireland wasn't being talked about enough? Well, I think it was obvious from the very beginning. We had a number of conversations right at the beginning. The focus of the campaign was to focus people's minds on the the riskiness of leaving the European Union, largely from an economic perspective. It was quite difficult to introduce Northern Ireland and its complexities into that context. And that was obvious right from the very beginning, frankly, Naomi. It was, the sense was, and it was a sense, I think, that people, oh God, Brexit would be a nightmare for Northern Ireland. But that was where the conversation began and ended, really. Wouldn't it be a nightmare for Northern Ireland? Not really a kind of proper discussion of why it would be a nightmare for Northern Ireland, or in fact, the whole island of Ireland, and therefore Britain's relationship with the island of Ireland. So that relationship didn't progress beyond just saying it was a nightmare, and it didn't form part of the campaign. Um, part of the reason it didn't form part of the campaign was you start in February 2016, which is when the, the Camp David Cameron's first renegotiation finished with the, the, the European Union. And he said, you know, I want to remain in the European Union. And then we had a, effectively a four-month campaign. Four months turned out it wasn't long enough to explain to British people or more specifically English people the benefits of being in the European Union. It certainly wasn't going to be long enough to explain to them the complexities of British-Irish history in the European context and how the unbelievable complexity of identity and feeling in Northern Ireland would be undermined by by a vote to leave. That was it was just going to be too too much of a challenge to do that. But I do think that it's sad that we weren't able to at least evidence some of the complexity for people ahead of the referendum and just show them that this would be wouldn't leave the European Union will create a kind of range of problems that we don't have any easy answers to. And that, and, and frankly, that's been borne out by the by the negotiation. What were you expecting to happen on the day after the vote? Well, I thought the I thought Remain would win narrowly. I think, like lots of other people, um, I wasn't expecting quite what happened. Can you just describe the scene of what it was like? So I had gone into Downing Street that night. I was one of the small team of people who were there. So I'd gone in earlier in the evening. There had been food served. People had been milling around watching initial results come in in the television. People were relatively relaxed. I decided to try and get some sleep. Temporary camp beds had been installed in what was normally a meeting room and kind of tried to get an hour or two sleep, but obviously I couldn't. My phone was buzzing. Like everyone else, I was watching these results come in or, you know, paying attention to them. It was surreal. What was that moment like? It was really odd. I think there's a difficulty sometimes in your brain with accepting that at one level you can accept something as a possibility and then uh, but, but also not quite bring yourself to believe that it's going to happen because it seems so unthinkable. When, when the unthinkable thing happens, it's it's a bit of a shock. I was, you know, personally obviously very pro-Remain, but was working as a civil servant, and you know, you you have a duty to remain impartial. So there's obviously an intense feeling of um, you know disappointment personally and, and kind of shock. And there was also, frankly, inside Downing Street, just a sense of an extraordinary moment. And this is 
slightly dazed and confused. Um, I sort of wrote a piece recently where I talked about it, the kind of end of a uh, political and economic order, and that's actually how it felt. I mean, the people who have to be right at the centre of it have to, you know, have to get on and do things. Someone had to write a, had to draft a statement for, for David Cameron to make in the Commons on Monday. We had to go and brief journalists on exactly what the government's position was. So in a weird way, you had to kind of get on with the job while being completely utterly shocked. And what had you done in the build-up to that day to try and put Northern Ireland on the agenda? Um, largely lecture my colleagues. I suppose one of the things that I wanted to be talked about was not just the specific risks around the border, and the border itself is really important, but I actually think the border is more than just a kind of practical challenge to be overcome. I think the border in relation to Brexit is the physical manifestation of a much broader set of questions around identity and around relationships between people in these islands. I felt that one of the achievements of British and Irish history in the, in the past few decades was coming to an extraordinarily complicated accommodation that helped our peoples on this island to kind of live with our history, really. To live, you know, and, and the people who have to live with the most history, frankly, are people from the northeastern part of the island of Ireland, where I'm from. And we kind of live with the history every day and people walk around with carrying identity, carrying history like a head cold. What's your assessment of where we are now? Actually, subsequent to the referendum, I continued to work in Downing Street for a year on communicating Brexit, if you like, as a civil servant. One of the things I found really frustrating is how Britain has divided itself into remain and leave tribes. I think when politics becomes really tribal, it moves beyond politics and it becomes a kind of socio-cultural thing that is quite problematic for society. And um, the most obvious comparison for me is Northern Ireland. I mean, in Northern Ireland, people, you know, whether you're Catholic or Protestant is just kind of imprinted on you and kind of shapes the way you see lots of things and the way lots of, you know, lots of people see you. And that's, it's becoming that way with Leave and Remain. People will, when, when offering a description of, a relative or a friend, they might preface it with, oh, he's a, he's a big Remainer, or he's a big, such a leave voter, you know, real Brexit person. And I think that's really difficult whenever you get into identifying people tribally. We used to say people who left Northern Ireland, finally, eventually, at some point, the Northern Ireland politics will catch up with the rest of the world. But it looks like what's happening is that politics in the rest of the world is catching up with Northern Ireland, which is sad. So what happens now, Naomi? So the agreement that will, that was reached that allows talks to move on to the next phase is quite vague. So it basically writes down and sets out everybody's red lines in order. So one, no hard border on the island of Ireland. That's for Dublin. Two, no hard border in the Irish Sea for the DUP. And then three, curiously, nevertheless, the UK is still leaving the single market and customs union once some magical unspecified solution is found to avoiding those borders. Right, so while a lot of progress has been made on the question of Ireland, the basic problem in the UK about leaving the single market and customs unit is still as strong as ever, and the whole thing has been kicked down the road, I suppose. Yes, it is a a real victory for the Irish government because they, they do have all of their concerns down on paper now, But yeah, exactly. It's kicked the issue down the road and it's kicked it onto Stormont, the devolved Northern Ireland Assembly. So anything that would differentiate Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK, that has to go through Stormont. That has to go through with consent of Northern Ireland. In practice, that basically means that the Assembly of Stormont is tasked with finding a solution that would allow both for a hard Brexit and no borders. Uh, I mean, it's the forum that's perhaps the least able to deal with 
impossible questions like that. Mm. Like it's been collapsed all year. Sinn Féin and the DUP can't even agree to govern together, let alone like what Brexit should mean. So I presume we can expect lots of fireworks ahead. There are big risks ahead. So for one thing, the Unionist DUP haven't fully endorsed the deal. They've hedged their bets. They say they didn't fully support it, but they left the decision ultimately to Theresa May. So that indicates they could still go for the dynamite option and withdraw their support from the British government, collapsing it because it relies on them for the majority if they're unhappy with the ultimate deal. Mm. Now, on the other hand, if a hard Brexit is impossible because of Northern Ireland, that carries a huge risk because the hardcore Brexiteers in Theresa May's cabinet, like how are they going to react to that when when reality dawns? So yeah, I think there's going to be political instability ahead. Sure, okay, well, I suppose <laughs> political stability, um, instability, <laughs> sadly enough, is the one thing I think we can count on. It's a little um, ironic, I suppose, that all this has happened because of Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland didn't even vote for Brexit, but against it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a really important point to remember. And also, remember a few things about the DUP. So the DUP did not support the Good Friday peace deal precisely because they were worried that it would distance Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK and lead to further integration with the Republic. So lots of their supporters never liked that peace deal in the first place. And they were also the only party that supported Brexit in Northern Ireland. It's important to note that they aren't representative of everyone in the province. So only 28% voted for them in 2017. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, have got the impression that the DUP is the only party in Northern Ireland. That impression comes across because Stormont is collapsed right now. Otherwise, there would be a mix of Sinn Féin and DUP politicians running the show together. But it's also because even though Northern Ireland elects almost as many Sinn Féin MPs as DUP MPs to Westminster, you never hear from those Sinn Féin MPs because they don't ever take their seats. That's one of their principles. They don't recognise Westminster as having jurisdiction over Northern Ireland. So the only voice you hear there is that of the DUP. Exactly. So if you're trying to understand as well why the DUP is acting in the way it is, it actually makes perfect sense for them. So it might potentially not be economically the best route for Northern Ireland, but for them it makes sense because Euroscepticism has long been part of their tradition for one. And also they're, you know, playing hardball and taking a, a, a hard pro-Brexit stance. That's popular with their voters. Firstly, because it's kind of like demonstrating how hardcore British they are, but also because some of their support are at least fairly relaxed and in some cases even enthusiastic about more barriers with the Republic of Ireland, especially if it means closer links with Britain. Right. And, you know, at times there seems to be a total disconnect in the British government with this terrible implication of a hard border and what it could do. Like it's being used a lot as a political chess piece. Uh, On the radio the other day, the Labour Brexiteer Kate Hoey declared that if a border is imposed, that would be Ireland's fault alone, not the UK's, and that the Irish would have to pay for it. You know, like where have you heard that before, Naomi? Let's take a listen to her. They would say, we're making the change, so we ought to come up with a solution. Well, we're not the ones who are going to be putting up the, the physical border. You know, if the end if, if it ends up with a, a no deal, we won't be putting up the border. They'll have to pay for it because, you know, it doesn't need to happen. And, and I think, you know, there is, we have to accept that there is a lot of politics going on here with what's happening in, 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 the, Irish, uh, in the Irish Republic at the moment. No, that's the possibility of an election. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh. 
at least they aren't talking about mining the border like landmines that mm-hmm. that was an option that was thrown around in the 1970s oh like i mean it's just it's amazing how short a time ago you know that kind of discussion was here and that we're we're, we're talking about this again yeah yeah exactly so, tim how would you sum all of this up well what really strikes me out of all of this is how the knowledge gap about ireland and britain is such a powerful political tool and that's really been revealed uh recently mm. like Brexiteers have been, until now, able to pretty breezily sidestep what is probably the biggest, most problematic roadblock to their Brexit, precisely because the public knows so little about Northern Ireland. Like the knowledge gap, in short, it means that in the absence of any real understanding of Ireland, um, the British public and the media can be manipulated, um, like easily, with rumours and plain falsehoods that are being made up by politicians, and those politicians clearly don't have a clue and are not interested in having a clue about what they're talking about Oof. damning rant rant <laughs> rant again over macaroni <laughs> rant on on the go <laughs> what i've observed is basically a, a lot of people have remarked to me often people from continental europe that brexit has really undermined the international image that britain had hmm. so it had this image of being super calm rational stable stiff upper lip peaceful sensible country basically you know common sense a lot of them have said you know, this has been kind of undermined by Brexit. And it, it strikes me that that image of Britain, that's very much linked to how Northern Ireland has been able to be ignored for so long mm. because it just does not fit into that image. Like, it, it contradicts it completely. Like, actually, this is a state which had a major civil conflict within its borders that is still bubbling under the surface and hasn't been fully addressed. And also, the role of the British state in that conflict is extremely murky as well. Mm. So... It, it, it strikes me that a lot of the worst atrocities that happened in Northern Ireland, they don't really feature in people's minds, you know, as a reality, because they just seem really Im- improbable for the Britain of people's imaginations. You know, like the, the red London buses and the policemen and the Queen and all that kind of stuff. Like, it just seems really unlikely for them, you know. But Brexit seems to have brought the reality of Northern Ireland to the surface, like a suppressed memory that Britain was trying to forget. And it's revealed that maybe maybe Britain wasn't the country it was presumed to be all along. <laughs> it's a, that is the subject of a, of a million undergraduate essays that are being written right now. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to, to sum it all up, let's take a listen to Gordon Guthrie. Uh, he's the author of the book Scotland After Brexit, and he was one time parliamentary candidate for the SNP. Uh, he sent us this piece uh, based on a piece he had published in the Scottish magazine Bella Caledonia, which uh, you actually wrote for recently, Naomi. I did indeed. So this segment we'd like to say has been sp- Sponsored by Peter Clark from Boston, Massachusetts. Peter would like to dedicate it to his friend and neighbour, Mary McDonough, who was born in Ireland in 1930 and she died in 2015. Mary, he told us, was the first person who taught him that history and war is not always black and white. Thank you so much, Peter, for your dedication. And as a quick reminder, if you would like to sponsor your own segment, you can do so on our website, www.theirishpassport.com. So, Here's Could the North Burn Again by Gordon Guthrie, and the music is Cello Duet Number no. 1 by Chief Boima. The year is 2017. There's been peace in the North for 20 years, some violence on the margins. The IRA is disarmed. The great killing year of 1972, when 480 people died, is 45 years behind us. The year is 1967. There's been peace in Belfast for 20 years. 
The IRA has stopped being a murder gang and is turning to politics. The IRA is disarmed and has six guns in Belfast. The great killing years of 1920 to 22, when 557 died, is 45 years behind us. The year is 1919. Czech irregulars are fighting Polish irregulars in Cheshire. German Free Corps are fighting in the Baltics. Slovenian nationalists are fighting Italian regulars in Corinthia. The violence in Northern Ireland is not unique, odd or strange. The circumstances of disputed borders are not new or special. The UK is a normal European country with a national dispute with its neighbour. Could the North burn again? Of course it could. As I speak, the UK is leaving the rich tapestry of international agreements that have shaped the continent since the end of the last war and the Great War before it. Those institutions finally brought peace to Europe for the first time since the Romans made a desert and called it Pax Romana. All the rest of Europe has thought long and hard about its relation with its neighbours, about its borders, about living with them, but not the UK. And as a result, wild conspiracy theories that Fine Gael and Sinn Féin are colluding to force United Ireland are here on British TV news. Government ministers punt this nonsense. Sensible journalists at the BBC are infected. One of the great British tropes for most of my life has been the forgetting of the war in Northern Ireland because it offends against the British national self-image. We are reasonable, we are light, we are easygoing, we are fair-minded and all the rest. It's nothing to do with us, mate. The UK is also obsessed with the IRA and its role in the Troubles and it downplays the intercommunal aspects of the war. British nationalist irregulars, loyalist organisations like the UDA, UFF and the UVF, along with some informal help from Protestant British members of the security forces, killed 1,027 people during the Troubles and in the post-peace process world they've continued to be the most active killers. Both sides in the North have good reasons to be afraid. The Protestant British remembered the slow wave of ethnic cleansing on the border and the car bombs, and the Catholic Irish remember the romper rooms, the poor kidnapped innocents beaten to death in front of a cheering audience of drinkers. But on the other side of the water, nobody remembers. They remember nothing at all. Well, Naomi, that leaves us with some serious food for thought. Indeed. And I think the important thing to remember is what is at stake here. So right now, a lot of politicians seem to be putting political ideals above the lives of ordinary people. So for people in Northern Ireland and along the border right now, their hard-won peace and the simple practicalities of how they live their everyday lives, those are what are at stake in these negotiations. And politicians should treat that with the care deserved. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today. And sadly, that's all we have time for this season, Naomi. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
Yeah, by the way, uh, in case you've forgotten, we still need your support to make the second season happen. Yes, we have Irish Passport tote bags for sale on our website to raise funds to make season two. So please do buy one, buy them for your friends, buy them for your family, because your support would mean so much to us. (laughs) True story, true story. I bought them for Christmas presents for everyone this year and I paid full price for them. I invested in us, Naomi. Yeah, he actually did, listeners. Like, it's major <laughs> dedication. And um, don't forget also to like and share the podcast if you like it to get the word out there. I can, you can always get in touch at, on Twitter at, at @passportirish. Yes, and of course, via email at theirishpassport at gmail.com. Thanks for all your support throughout the last year. We've had so much fun making season one and we'll look forward to you joining us again in spring 2018. We've got some fantastic episodes coming up, many of them suggested by you. Yes, due to overwhelming requests, we'll definitely be doing an episode on the GAA. We got your emails, guys. Uh, We'll also be doing others on the travelling community, the 1916 Rising, socialism in Ireland, and this, this growing and changing idea of a united Ireland, of what the realities and challenges will be about that. So, for the time being, Gurma Hagath, Gach Dinner, August Slán. Slán, August Nalakhani Yiv. Thank you so much for listening. 